Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish, and you can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you like this show, you can rate it, review it, subscribe it, smash the subscribe button. Yes. Um, Go. How about this? Um, We put a lot of the interviews from this show up on the YouTube page. Many people are talking about the YouTube page. So go go subscribe to the YouTube page and also turn the little notifications on so that when you get a new show or something like that on the episodes or on the page that you get it right there sent to your phone. I know people don't want too many notifications, but this is a this is a good one. I I promise So go check that out. Um, We do appreciate it. And frankly, we don't have a whole lot to say here on the front because Ari Wasserman is our guest today on the show. Recruiting editor for The Athletic does an, a fantastic podcast called Stars Matter uh, and also is their writer and editor for all things recruiting college football. And I'm not sure if there is another conversation, Steve, you need to hear about name, image, and likeness and what is happening in the recruiting world in college football right now than what Ari has to say on this episode. I am so glad that Ari is as glossed over by NIL as I am <laughs> and as feels as overwhelmed about NIL coverage as I am. Uh, that was refreshing to hear. Um, he's really, really good. And a really, uh, just a really smart dude uh, on this subject. Uh, I, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We talked about Arch Manning's recruitment. We talked about who's actually using name, image, and likeness. What do we actually know about name, image, and likeness? What the future of name, image, and likeness could be? How do you report on name, image, and likeness? He covered all of it, and he did it in an exceptional way. But before we get to all of his very fascinating and interesting words, Steve, Lamestream Sports is brought to you by... Jasper. No, it's Jasper's. More on that later. Jasper's. It's a Marigo, but it's Jasper's. Yeah, yeah, there's an S on Jasper's. It's possessive. Um, They also possess the best free parking lot in downtown Nashville. They possess one of the best menus in all of Nashville restaurants, especially if you're looking for a place to go watch a a game and play free games in their game room. That's Shuffleboard. That's Connect Four. That's Jenga. That's Air Hockey, Papa Shot, Ski Ball. You name it, darts. They've got it, and it is all free. The, the menu's not, but everything else is free. Uh, the drink specials are great. And uh, if you want to hate watch some hockey, please, by all means, uh, go to Jasper's over on West End, our wonderful friends from Four Top Hospitality. Again, right next to Amerigo. It is nothing less than you would expect from the next evolution to the sports bar. And if you would like information from a, a, rising, a rising star in the Nashville media landscape, and you'd like to get an email from that that that. That, that new rising media conglomerate and you'd like to get that email directly in your email box and you can learn about things like the mayoral race or judges and all this other cool stuff where do you think people should go sign up steve nashvillebanner.com it's that simple huh very simple it's right there on the front page nashvillebanner.com sign up it's a great it's a great newsletter uh you'll get it right now from steve, steve cavendish and co um all right here's the deal with ari um, we're just going to get you to the interview I, 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 I like how you just like but Demetri Kaladimo says the co. Oh well, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't on purpose. I mean, she's not. She's not listening. So, well, she's. She's. A, she also has a, a. She's a. An icon in this city. She doesn't even yeah. need. She doesn't even need a name. She just is Demetri. Yeah, she's so. not the co. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. All right. Now, uh, I, I, there, there's not much to add here because I'm telling you guys, Ari is so good at explaining all of this stuff. And you're right. All of our eyes glaze over 
but that will not happen with this conversation. I promise you, because Ari is spectacular and he sees it the right way. So here's our conversation with the athletics recruiting editor, Ari Wasserman. Ari, good to see you, man. Welcome to the show. We appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time today. Anytime, guys. Happy to be here. So I was listening to the Andy Staples show, which you occasionally are a guest on. You also host a podcast, Stars Matter, for The Athletic about recruiting. You have covered recruiting for a very long time. We're going to get into name, image, and likeness. We're going to get, I know people's eyes start to glaze over, but this is yeah. going to be, <laughs> you, you've had a lot of really interesting conversations about what it is like to cover name, image, and likeness. So we're going to spend a lot of time on that today. But before we do that, I just, can you give everybody a, a sense of like your career path that has led you to this point and, and how you got into recruiting? And then how do you end up now at The Athletic doing basically all the recruiting stuff for, for everybody across that company's platform? Yeah, that's, uh, this was never the intention. Like I didn't grow up uh, looking at rivals.com and 247 and being obsessed with visits and all that stuff. And what happened was I was in college in journalism because I've always wanted to cover college football for a living at University of Arizona. And uh, at the time, believe it or not, there weren't that many jobs in journalism, but I get out. Got, oh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was it was 2009. So it was even uh, probably better then than it is now. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not. But <laughs> I I grew up in Arizona, but my dad uh, grew up in Ohio. So when I was applying for jobs after college, I was sending resumes out to everywhere. And um, I got an internship in Columbus, Ohio, where my grandparents lived at the time. So I took this internship and I flew out there and it was at rivals.com's Ohio State page. Um, and it was called Buckeye Grove at the time. And my job wasn't to cover recruiting. It was to be the team writer because I had no interest in being a recruiting writer. Hey, hang on. Hang on. I just need to. I, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. No, no problem. But Steve needs to understand this. What, it, what I'm hearing is that my first job out of college was working for Kevin Noon. And My your first job. job out of college was working yes. for Kevin Noon. That's right. Okay, uh, I, just, I just want to be clear. Yeah, Shout yeah. out to Kevin Noon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I was making about a, a solid 16 grand a year at the time. But, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was living. But what he did was he gave me an opportunity to cover big time college football. And it helped me sidestep the covering lacrosse in Iowa step that most people don't do that. Do. You know, you know, a lot of people start at preps and, and go to places that are very small papers. I got to say I was covering Ohio State when I was 21. Um, and then through then I, I got another job and then I eventually was the Ohio State beat writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer um, where I was covering the team. But I found uh, during that time. Because we have it was during the hits age where everything was about traffic and how many hits you could get. You, we had um, access to our metrics. And I noticed during the time and through the leadership and guidance of, of a mentor of mine named Doug Lee Maurice there, we, we came to the conclusion that recruiting just moved the needle more than yeah. team coverage. Yeah. So I didn't want to ever be the type of person that covered recruiting from a calling a kid, uh, where are you visiting? Who's your top five, all the same updates that still exist on two, four, seven and rivals. Not that they're not valuable. I just didn't want to do that because I'm not calling 517 year old. Amen, brother. You know, it's, and I, and frankly, I don't find it that interesting. So what we did at, um, at cleveland.com and the plane dealer was that we wrote in-depth analytical stories about, you know, from the team down where we focused on the team's recruiting strategy and like, why are they recruiting this area more or what this kid's you know, personal situation is of like, why would you leave California, for example? Or like, it was always uh, analysis. It was never, 
who's going where or who's going. And, th- and those stories did very well. Like Nick Saban, for instance, my first year there offered a kid in Cleveland and we wrote a big takeout on why Alabama was recruiting Cleveland and, and what that meant for Ohio state. And like those stories always did very well. And as I got to the athletic, my first job was covering Ohio state's football team as, as the beat writer. Um, those recruiting stories sold and performed very well. And it transitioned into a national recruiting uh, position. And if you go read my stuff at the athletic, you'll find that it, it's, it's nothing like what you'll see at two, four, seven. I can't compete with those guys who are calling every kid in America and know where they're going and where they're visiting. And, but mine's more of a, you know, a big picture analysis of, of how things are shaping out, what it means for the current coaches. You know, NIL has now become a big part of that, as we're going to talk about. Um, and I, I find that the way that I've covered recruiting is more of an interesting thing for the general fan who yep. is wants to be up to speed with the trends and, and know what's going on or why is my team doing this or what's this kid that's in Waxahachie that I'm writing about is committed to Texas Tech and you know, is he going to go to Alabama or is he going to stay at Tech and what the personal, you know, battle is there? Like, there, it's all a, a bigger story for me. So um, that's my career and that's where I'm at. And it kind of transitioned into a recruiting focused job. But I'm very curious and I'm sure we'll get into it, like what my job is going to look like in five years. <laughs> well, I mean, if it so exists. How is you, so, <laughs> so let's so let's start there. How is this job different than it was two years ago? So I went to, like I just mentioned, to Waxahachie High School uh, south of Dallas on Wednesday. And, um, you know, we did a lot of visiting with the player and the coaches and the player's mother. And I'm writing a story about a player. And the second half of it, 40 minutes, was discussion of NIL off the record about, like, where things stand or what should we expect or what do you know. And, you know, it's it's a very financially driven scenario now. Not that that family specifically is, is financially driven, but parents and kids are curious about like, what should we expect and stuff, you know? And it's like, I find myself not knowing the answer to a lot of these questions because it's all, uh, none of it's public information. If a kid signs an NIL deal, people can tweet out, he made a million dollars. He made 500,000. He made 20 grand. None of it. You can confirm because it's personal information the same way. I can't confirm what you make or you can't confirm what I make. Um, so as recruiting is shifting in this past year it's now more so why are you picking schools and people will tell you the same old stuff of well they develop people for the nfl better or you know it's a family atmosphere and all the same stuff that you read over and over again but now everything comes back to that what are you getting paid or what are you getting promised or what's your deal or how many sponsorships are you going to have and you know that to me kind of changes the entire dynamic of my job which was why would you go to this college and what's the reason for it now if the answer is we got paid the most, then it's just like that removes any analysis or, or thought process that goes along with what what am I doing? If it's a bidding war. Okay. That's it. There's no analysis. Right. One of the, one of the really interesting things that you just mentioned is the, the kind of the conversation that you'll have with parents uh, kind of in the, in a recruiting story like this and those conversations have changed too what kinds of questions were parents like if you were reporting this out two or three years ago versus today i mean you had this 40 minute kind of off the record conversation i would imagine because parents are just as bewildered about this as as kids are uh, and, and as as programs are right now as someone who's in it what kinds of questions were you getting a few years ago versus versus now yeah what's your take on on the way the coach approaches his job uh how have they done what's the national perception 
Um, what do you think of the way that they develop talent? You know, uh, what, uh, how big of a deal is it to travel far back and forth? You know, just like general questions about that. And, um, you know, not that that doesn't still exist, you know, because this family that I'm, I'm talking about is not, I would say is very not financially driven, but it's just, in dis- it's just discussions about, you know, that world because everybody is curious about where it can lead. So, you know, listen, it's college football. We all know that bag men existed and players were getting benefits and some school was doing this, this, this school was doing that cheating hearsay, all that stuff. I get it. I'm not naive to know that it didn't exist. And that is all well and good because if it wasn't something that you could confirm or that you can't, I mean, you can't write about it now that it's legal. It's a completely different dynamic because I find that a lot of my um, responsibilities are trying to figure out like who's getting paid what or, or who is being offered what or who, which collective I wrote a big story about the wake forest collective and what their goals are. It's just, it's a completely different shift. And, you know, if you go like read comments on my stories from two years ago, and then you compare them to the, the comments that I get on my stories now, it's just like, ah, well, they paid them more. And it's like, I just spent two weeks talking to 10 people and reporting out this big story. And the people's takeaway from this isn't what I'm doing. It's well, who got paid the most? And I got to be honest with you guys, it's exhausting and it's kind of demoralizing. So I don't know if this is going to normalize, but it's like, okay, I'll just go cover the games then again, because this isn't, this isn't as interesting anymore because everybody's just going to yell at each other about people being paid more. Well, so I've heard a lot of people say this, and I think some SEC coaches are certainly saying this. People all across the country are saying this, which is you can have like an in-home visit with a coach and a parent and a kid, right? Traditionally, all the questions you talked about are the same questions. You know, what are you going to do for my son? How are you going to develop him? What about education? What about position? What about this? What about that? Like like all normal, yeah, yeah, totally normal questions for a parent to want to ask of, hey, I'm handing my son over to you for the next three or four years. What are you going to do? Is, is it is it true or give me and maybe this is an unanswerable question, but try to give me a percentage at the end of that normal conversation that parents are still very much having with coaches. How many just end with at the very end is the last question, which is, well, and how much is this going to be worth to me? Like, how I don't much know. That's I, how much the last question. It probably is the first question, though. So what percentage of recruits, let's say in the top 1000 recruits, what percentage well, are, are driven by that now let's let's do top 100 because if you start getting into a recruit that's ranked 961 i don't know if the opportunities are the same for them as they okay. are for the you know and i don't know this is just a complete guess and then, and then i'll be frank with you guys because like you, you talk to reporters and people who are our podcast personalities and stuff and like who are afraid to say they don't know but i'm not like i don't know like i i think that if I had to guess, probably 75%. Like if you're a top 100 yeah. player nationally, you know, you're a valuable asset to whoever you're going to play for. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a topic of conversation because it's such a prevalent discussion point now. And if they like kids get on Twitter, prospects get on Twitter because it's important as a way to be accessible to coaches. Right. And they want to see the information. They want to spread. Hey, I got this offer. I'm visiting here what is the number one talking point in college football? What are we talking about right now? These kids are seeing it every single day, every time they log onto the internet. So you don't think that they're concerned about that? And rightfully so. You know, if I was 18 years old and I was a top 100 player in the country and I heard that Bryce Young made a million dollars last year, 
Right. You don't think that I'm going to be concerned about that if Alabama comes calling me? Of course I am. So, you know, and, and like the thing about it is that we've been programmed for so long in college football to demonize uh, the entire idea of being compensated for your skill set. Because like if you go back and look like my first year on, on the Ohio State beat when I was 21 years old and had no idea what I was doing. The Terrell Pryor stuff happened. If you oh, remember I know. All that. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. And they had these kids sitting up there. And I remember, like, I feel like I was at a murder trial. Like, the guy sold his own stuff. And, you know, Jim Trestle uh, lost his job for, and probably rightfully so, for, for lying to the NCAA, which is the number one thing you can't do. But, like, when you think about some of the scandals that happened in college football 10 years ago and how so the trivial. world react to it. It's quaint. There was the, the, the cover of uh, ESPN, the magazine said how deep it went and they had them up on there. Like it was like some sort yes. of like Enron Ponzi scheme. And it's just like now as fans who have loved the sport for so long, we have, it takes time to reprogram your brain of like, this is okay. So, so like, you know, it seems like it's bad, but like if you're a top 100 player nationally in a recruiting class, before you get on college campus, you hear a lot of this. Well, they have never played it down. How could you possibly compensate them? Right. You hear that a lot. If you're a top 100 player nationally in high school football recruiting, you are in the top 1% of your profession. So they are absolutely um, worth what they are being paid. You know, in some instances, I don't know if I'd pay 8 million for a quarterback, but they are, they've achieved more in their field than most people achieve in their fields professionally, just by getting to that point. So if they want to be compensated and feel entitled to, I feel like it's okay to normalize that and to pay them. I think it's fine. Is, is this not just sort of like the draft element, like the, like the way that NFL draft became, and, and Steve says this all the time, like you're selling hope to fans, right? Like you're selling hope. That's all it is, yeah. And so it, could you not argue, and I'm curious how you report on this, because obviously we don't have the details of like the, the actual in, you know, uh, agreements here. But do you find yourself looking more at like hit rate, bust rate, five-star quarterbacks are 50-50 proposition because in theory, you could argue, let's say hypothetically, Nico Yamaleava is the guy we're talking about. Hypothetically, you could argue. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> alle allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly. Yes. Um, that, that he's actually more valuable as the recruit selling the hope than he actually would be as a quarterback yes. on campus. Because once he gets to campus, he's got to deliver on the field. And we don't know what that if, that, if that's yeah. going to happen or not. Yeah. And I, I'm working on a story right now with a coworker. Like we're just calling recruiting directors and asking, hey, you got a, you got 10 million bucks. How do you divvy this up on how you would buy your class? So like we're trying to like get different insight of like, well, we'd spend eight, 80 percent of it on a quarterback, but that you're not getting that very often. Um, we're getting a lot of, you know, offensive line, you know. And it's like funny because offensive linemen are the least marketable players on the field. I know. So, but they're the most important to, to winning. So like, that's what I always say about Arch Manning. Like Arch Manning is a five-star prospect, but I feel like his, his worth and symbolism uh, of his commitment means more to the program than it would like what he brings on the field because he's being recruited by schools that already have five-star quarterbacks on the roster. It's like if Arch Manning chooses your school, that is a, that is a symbolic thing of like the number one most hyped recruit of all time thinks that this is a worthy place for him to go. I think that you take that and run with it more so than winning nine games in a year because he started as a freshman. So everything that you're saying is true. And it's just like the reason why people are obsessed with recruiting even before NIL is because everybody always wants to know what's next. They want to know what's next before, like they're more interested in what's next than watching the game on TV because yeah. what's next is what inspires hope and what inspires 
you know, thought process of what could be. And then when those kids that they're reading about get on campus, they forget about them and they're thinking about what's next again. Um, so, you know, paying money to, to sign a class, like let's just say Tennessee is the, is the place hypothetically uh, that is paying all this money to get these kids to come to their school. If they sign a top five class this year, think about how much fun it would be to be a Tennessee fan, even before those kids play a game when it's been really shitty to be a Tennessee fan for a long time. So, like sometimes I wonder <laughs> like if you are, if you're paying for the actual production or if you're just paying right. for the interest and the hope that comes along with what can come next. So like, there's a lot of dynamic there. And, you know, I'm very curious too, because I have two schools of thought on how NIL was going to go. You crack the door open a little bit. They're going to bust right through it. Right. Um, or it's going to go crazy in the first year. People are going to start to set the market. You know, you're going to start to see it come down and it's just yeah. like everything else. I mean, you know, is what is worth paying. And some of these people are these boosters of these college programs are billionaires. So maybe the answer is, unlimited like maybe it'll go so crazily out of control that these guys will make more money um in college than they would from their rookie nfl contract maybe it'll get to that point are you buying lane kiffin what he's saying right because it seems like there's two schools of thought on this like you just laid out that eventually you need either roi for your business or roi on the field right wins because you're paying for the wins or is it just unlimited and the boosters as long as they have enough money and they still love their program as much as they do like that's what Lane Kiffin seems to be saying, right? Is that like, it doesn't matter if you get ROI anymore. We're just going to keep spending to try to keep giving you players. Well, I mean, the thought process is, is let's just say like, and I'm not saying Ole Miss by any stretch of the imagination, but pick a random SEC team. Are South they paying Car- for South players? Carolina. <laughs> I don't even want to put a, I don't even want to put a name on it because right. I don't want people to think I'm implying anything, but let's just say a random SEC team. I think everybody assumes that everybody in the SEC uh, to some extent has dropped the bag at some point all these programs have been doing whatever they need to do to get players onto their team. And a lot of them haven't been very good for a long time, but it doesn't mean that they're going to stop trying, <laughs> you know? So like return of an investment is a very interesting dynamic because when you talk about NIL, you know, and, and you know, I know you guys said this is going to be 30 minutes, but we can go an hour on this because this isn't even going to get close to, to, to winding <laughs> down, but return on investment um, is like a very complicated thing because NIL was supposed to be, this like, well, go post for pictures at the pizza shop on the main drag of your campus or post a tweet to your 100,000 followers about kombucha tea. There was never supposed to be about how much money can we raise as a fan base to throw at this guy to show up at one party a year. So like, I don't know what's going to happen with the collectives and the collectives I think are great um, because, you know, what has college football always been? It's been creating a new rule and then how can coaches find the gray area and exploit that rule? Like, did we not think that stuff like this was going to happen? I don't know how the, I don't even think it's possible for the NCAA to crack down on it anymore. You can't put your hand in somebody else's pocket. Is it like, is it the commissioners? Are they the only ones that can do it? How could you possibly limit any, if I, if you got a raise and I I came after that, what are you going to do? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and they also have this rule of like, you can't induce players to come play for your school financially. Right. How do you okay. prove anyone's intent is? You could say, hey, come to Texas A&M or come to Ohio State or Georgia or Clemson. We'll pay you one million bucks when you get on campus. Of course, I'm going to go to that school. And if you get mad at me for being induced financially for going, I'm just going to say, I love the atmosphere. What are you going to do? You don't know what my intentions were. And the other thing, too, is that, like, how is that any different than Nick Saban getting up on TV and saying, hey, Bryce Young made a million dollars last year. It's right. the same thing. Everybody's induced financially. I'm induced financially. You're induced financially. We all have families to support and roofs to put over our head. So, like, why are we limiting 
the top 100 players in high school football, like they're not more valuable than some of the coaches in the programs. So, so how do you report on like, we let's, let's, we can kind of drill this down to Fisher and Saban then. So what, what, if you were trying to figure out, because again, I'm assuming that there is no piece of paper somewhere where there's an agreement that links a school and a collective and a player, right? Like that, the whole point is that there's probably no paper trail, right? So how do you, how do you, how's your job covering recruiting, trying to go out and write about this stuff, talk about this stuff, which coaches are doing this or doing that and where recruits want to go? Like, how do you report on it? If, if at the end of the day, at the end of the string you're pulling on, there's just, it just evaporates into thin air. It makes me want to walk off a cliff. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, it sucks because like, these are personal contracts. Like even in the transfer portal, people are like so worried about the high school stuff. But like if you're a high profile person that wants to enter the transfer portal, just say, hey, you know what? I'm at program X. Program Y is going to pay me this much money to get there. I'm going to enter the portal and go there unless you guys get that money together. They sign a personal contract with a collective or with a business owner at that school that says they're going to make it. And then that, that contract, he's an adult. That's his. We don't get to look at it. And the only way that we ever got yeah. to find out about the $8 million was because the lawyer who brokered the deal gave us that contract, but that's not going to be something that happens all the time. So like when you look at, um, that was somebody trying, that was somebody deliberately trying to manipulate the market there too. No, that wasn't, but that wasn't even my story. I don't even know who the source was. I was just making, I was just making right, uh, right, right, right. a general idea of like, how do you get that? Somebody gave Stuart whoever the, con yeah. but the contract isn't public information. So like, if you do that, then, um, you know, you might get a story here or there, but from from time to time, that happens. You're not going to get it every single time you are talking about somebody. So, like, there is no like even even if there is a paper trail, it's not public information. So, the thing that most frustrates me about NIL is that um, everybody throws out these numbers. This guy got paid a hundred million dollars. This guy got paid five bucks. This guy, it, it doesn't matter, and everybody automatically assumes that it's true. Nick Saban went to a, a booster meeting and said things that weren't true because yeah, everybody the ja just automatically the Jackson, believes it. The, the Jackson, Jackson State thing's right? not yeah. true. Come on. What, but he might've heard it somewhere or it was a rumor and he just regurgitated it. And that's what everybody does all the time. And that's why Jimbo Fisher got angry and, and maybe rightfully so. But also at the same time, if you put my life on it, did Texas A&M pay? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's like also the thing that I don't understand is it's not against the rules. So who cares? <laughs> right, but right. Like it's like this like whole thing of just like, if I were Jimbo Fisher, I'd be like, you know what, man, we paid every single one of our kids in our recruiting class, 5 million bucks. You want to be next? My DMS are open. Right. Why don't you just say that? Right. <laughs> and I know that there's some murky waters with, um, with NIL or, uh, I mean, sorry, with the NCAA and people are wondering if whether the collectives are going to get brought, but like the NCAA isn't putting their hands in anyone's pockets anymore. So if they want to start like banning kids from eligibility or not letting them play because they got paid, like that's completely un-American and something that is not going to last for a long time. So, you know, is, is, the, is, this, is the solution to this then, because it seems like we have a little bit of transparency in the sense that we know that this is going on and we know that this is a thing, but we don't really sort of know is the solution then just sort of radical transparency where every NIL deal is disclosed and, and you can sort of see everything that's, that's, that's out there. Like that takes, you know, that takes a lot of the, the, the sort of the, well, it takes some of the problems kind of out of the equation. Yeah. I didn't go to law school, so I don't even know if that's possible and I'm not being sarcastic. I really <laughs> no, don't no. know. 
But like, if everybody said, why don't we just have radical uh, transparency and everybody's I mean, it would require some some form of legislation. Yeah, like, I don't know, but like, how can you legislate that every single person's money is out? Like, I wouldn't want everybody on earth to know what I make. Right. Although it would be be healthier for the workforce in theory that that everybody knows what everybody makes. I mean, I guess like if if every single American was like, yeah, this is what I make and it's public information and everyone's tax returns could get looked up on a database. But like, if it's not happening to me and you, then how is it going to happen to them? Well, it's like they... It, it, you you would set up some sort of scheme like uh, along the lines of like campaign finance disclosure. I mean, yeah, yeah. Here's here's the thing. You know, the, these kids are at at, at universe at public universities getting getting these sorts of. I mean, you probably couldn't do it for the private universities, but you could do it for the publics. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess like in theory, it makes sense to just like put everything out there. It's kind of like the same idea of like legalize all drugs because they're doing it anyway, and you can right. see it, you know. And it's just like I don't I don't know. Like I'm not. I'm just a dude who covers college football recruiting. Like, I wish I wish I wish I had some grandiose solution to an issue. Um, and I know that everybody's just starving. And here's the thing. We all love this sport and we all love what it's made of. And even though cheating was prevalent before all this came out, there was like a sense of like even playing field, everybody playing by the same rules that we all kind of tricked ourselves into believing. Um, and I think that we all are just kind of craving that back and we're all looking for solutions of just like, how can we get back to recruiting the way that we know it with these kids being compensated? And it just like, I think the answer to your question really is we all have to get comfortable with the evolution of this. And like, maybe in five years, it'll be feel normal and it'll be right. And, you know, it won't be criminalized to assume that the quarterback of a team made a lot of money because he probably deserves it. And that's just the new normal. Like, I, I don't think that we're ever going to get like put anything in place legislatively or rule wise through the NCAA. That's going to make it feel like it did in 2018. I just think we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Lamestream sports is in fact brought to you by Steve Cavendish of the Nashville banner. Jasper. Uh, what was that? Jasper. I think there's an apostrophe S. Now, there's not more than one Jaspers, but like it's possessive, I believe. So it's Jaspers, yes. but it's Amerigo. Right. There's Next no door. S on Amerigo unless you were to go to multiple Amerigos. Right. Then it, then it would work. Um, much, but it's much, Jaspers and yes. Amerigo. Right. Okay. Jaspers, got that straight. Jaspers right. and Amerigo and no free shouts to any grocery store. But if you're one of those Tennesseans, that likes to add an S to the grocery store. The, I, a certain I, chain out of Cincinnati. It drives me absolutely batshit crazy. I'm like, well, how many did you go to? Like, oh, I'm going to this place. Like, how many? I guess we can say it. No free shouts. People know what Kroger is, but like, no, I'm going to Kroger's. What? Where are you going? Like, how yeah. many are you going to? No, there's just there's I, no S there. So Amerigo. I feel like that was a lot more. It, it was a lot more um, definite. Back when they used to, they used to do the "Let's Go Krogering" uh, kind of ad campaign. Now that it's just Kroger, or that people people go Krogers. But if we were if we were oh. still going Krogering, maybe we wouldn't be adding the S. I, I think adding the S is stupid. I think it's a sign of our education <laughs> system failing all of us. But but just so we're clear here, Jaspers, Jaspers, go. But there's not more than one Jaspers. <laughs> right, right. But but it's, but, but, it, it's, but it's Jaspers. Right, it's possessive. It's Jasper's. It's his. I, mean, I, I can't pronounce. I cannot pronounce it any differently. The dog owns the restaurant. How exactly. I have to be. I have to be clear with this. But if you didn't know, of course, that's the. It name is. Of it the is the dog's dog. restaurant. It is the dog's restaurant. Um, also, here's it, there's there is a 
I, I'm careful to use the term epidemic, uh, obviously, in these trying times. But sure, sure. It, there, there is a problem that has arisen that has would, come to would light. You say there's a, would you say there's a spike? Yeah. Would you say there's a, a rising uh, a rising problem? There has been an increase in cases of this particular issue. <laughs> this is all way too soon, Steve. <laughs> um, at Jasper's, there is a particular issue that, that has come. New shit has come to light, man. And this is what you pay me for. You pay me to elevate these these issues. And I, here's what I'm doing, Steve. I'm going to deputize every single one of our amazing listeners. I said this on the Gold Standard podcast. No free shouts. Uh, and of course, on here on Lamestream Sports, I, it has come to my attention that too many people, mostly I would assume younger collections and gaggles of young ladies from out of town, um, let's just say, are using the brand new spectacular air hockey table at Jasper's. Free. Free air hockey. Free table. air yes. hockey table. Free air. Brand new. Free. No dead spots, even though Steve doesn't follow the rules. Stop. They put their drinks on the air hockey table playing. Don't do that, people. And here's what I'm going to say. You all now have agency in solving this problem. If you are in Jaspers and you see someone put a drink down on the air hockey table playing surface, I want you to march your happy ass over there. And I want you to tell them that this is unacceptable behavior. And and you you are deputized. Don't kick them out of the restaurant because we want them to spend money. But but. But get the drinks off the table. And if you'd like to use a stern word or two, maybe, but like no cursing. Get, let's no cussing. Yeah. Let's just get the damn drinks off the air hockey table so that all of us can enjoy a perfect, wonderful, brand new air hockey table at the spectacular game room uh, at Jasper's with free parking on West End. We must protect the table, people. We must protect the table. We must protect this table. <laughs> I mean, it is really the, the game room is absolutely awesome. It really is fun and it's crowded all the time. And I realize that sometimes you don't have a place to put your cocktail or your beverage or your drink or whatever. But like, let's have respect. Let's have take, respect. Take, take two steps to your left. You can put it over there on the shelf for the table that's over there. Meet your neighbors. Ask them, hey, can I leave this here while I'm playing? While I'm enjoying this awesome free air hockey table? Wait, wait, wait. Human interaction, Steve? Uh, uh, you know. Like, talking a, to another human being? It's a novelty. No way. No way. Um, so, do not trap the puck with your paddle, and do not put the drink don't, don't, on the air hockey table. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to do that. Well, I can't. You're not it. deputized to stop that. You're a cheater. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So let's just move on. <laughs> Go to Jasper's. It is a great place to watch all sporting events. You got MLS games. You got NHL playoffs. You got NBA playoffs. The, we, we've told you about the menu. They are great, wonderful, amazing people here in Nashville, locally owned. Um, you guys know the drill, man. Go to Jasper's, but get those damn drinks off the hockey table, please. If your boss came to you and said, hey, I want you to write a story, because even Jimbo Fisher said it in his press conference. I, I'm totally for some uniform guardrails and guidelines. Nick Saban, like that's what's ironic about the Saban-Fisher thing is that they actually agree with each other. Uh, and, and I think everyone's been talking about this. So if, if, if I came to you and, you're, and I'm your boss and I say, listen, I need you to do a really long form piece about what that could actually look like. Like what, what does uniform guardrails and guidelines and regulations, what, what does that actually look like? How would you begin to write that story? Where would your mind go? I don't even know, man. Like, honestly, like just actually, can you just like repeat that 
Like I want to <laughs> think about it again. So, so Nick Saban's sort of hinted at this, that if you just go to like, let, let's say I'm Greg Sankey and I want to create uniform guide guidelines mm-hmm. for sec players. Could I just in theory say, all right, if you come to the sec, all 14 or 16 institutions, you get $50,000 a year as a player. All if you're on scholarship, all 85 players get 50 grand a year at Alabama or Vanderbilt, the third string guard or the starting quarterback. Is is that what they're talking about when they talk about uniform guidelines? Is it like, but now like that C- we're out there though, and the starting quarterback at Alabama made a million why on earth would anybody want to agree to that? Cause like it might've be been a nice, it would have been a great rule to start two, 10 years ago. Yeah. And then that would have been fine. Like at least they were, everybody was compensated. And then we can like take the unpaid labor debate out of it. Like this is, this whole NIL thing is a result of years of taking advantage of unpaid athletes that work harder doing what they're doing um, than maybe I do what I'm doing. Like, think about how much it, it, <laughs> you have to put into being a college athlete, you know? And it's just like, it's weird because, and I'm going to say this because I think that everybody generally agrees with this. And I feel this way. I firmly believe that players should be paid and compensated what they're worth. Okay. I also am deadly afraid that the sport is going to get messed up as a result of it because of how it's been for so long and what we've come to love about it. And I think that there needs to be a solution in the middle where both of those things can be one or where one of those things can happen. And the other thing won't where we pay these kids what they're, they're worth, whether it be through advertisements or NIL deals and the sport is preserved. And like, because like, listen, the Jordan Addison transfer, right? You have a, a guy who won the Bolitnikoff award who went to a middle tier program and starred as, you know, the best player on the team. And then what happens right after that happens, he leaves. Like that's not, that's like a money driven thing. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I'm not Jordan Addison. I've never spoken to the man, but I think the idea was that he had NIL opportunity elsewhere. And like, if, all that's going to happen is that the seven to 12 best teams in America are just going to pillage everyone else's rosters. Yeah. Then it's just like, we're not going to have a sport left. So, you know, like the part of the, the college football fun of it is recruiting under evaluated players, develop them into really good players and then beating good teams with the good guys that you got. But like, it's like now is Pitt just a farm system for USC. And if that's the case, then the sport is going to be different forever. So like, I'm just, I'm just very, you're already, you're already seeing that in basketball. Bas- yeah. Basketball is way worse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like it's. Does anybody watch basketball? Not until March. <laughs> they I watch mean, it in I March did, I, for three for three weeks. I know. I, know. I didn't I mean, watch I, a single regular season college basketball game this year. I watch a lot. I watch a lot of it, but I, I mean, I, I'm an outlier, and and I recognize that I'm an outlier. I mean, college basketball is has largely shifted to the tournament. Uh, Ari, I think you're right though. It's just on how you're explaining, and this is how I this this is just how I tried to explain it to people when they ask me the exact same question, and I have the same look on my face, like. I don't have a fucking clue what they're going to (laughs) do. Like uh, to me, it is trying to find the sweet spot between compensating them, giving them collective bargaining rights, having them be paid, but not all the way to employee status, because then all of a sudden you're federally taxed and you're, you could be fired on, you know, in a right to work state. Like to your point, you're not protected by like the amateur model to some degree. And I think athletes want to be protected by the amateur model, but at the same time, want to be fairly compensated. So you're threading that needle. And when we, and so many different media people don't know how to talk about this. I don't even know if the commissioners and the presidents and the coaches know how to talk about this. 
because what you're trying to figure out is, as I just asked you, what is that middle ground look like from like an actual? So you say like, what are the guardrails? It's like, right. Like, what are they? It's like asking me, how can we make sure that the top 75 players in the country consider everybody instead of just five schools? It's like, (laughs) these are all theories of like, yes, man, I'm with you, bud. Like, I I think there should be. But like, it's it's like trying to ask where the Ark of the Covenant's hidden. Like, I have no idea, like, what to do. <laughs> you know, like, I, like, report on stuff. I mean, think about how much money uh, Greg Sankey's making in a year. Let him figure it out. I'm not here to, you know, I, right, I, right. I, I want there to be, and I'm not criticizing your question. Don't take it that way. I'm just, I'm belittling myself and saying that, like, I report on this and I've got my ideas. But, like, this is a very complex issue that, like, yeah. I'm not necessarily sure there's a five-minute answer that you can give on a podcast that, you, like, I am genuinely concerned about the future of the sport you know as a as a reporter i'm concerned about what my job is going to look like um and i you know maybe it'll be even more fruitful because the nil stuff is wildly entertaining to people but i do think that we are getting to a point where they are where fans who don't understand what's going on are becoming fatigued by it like people don't want to read about nil every single time i write a story they don't want to read nine questions about NIL when I write a mailbag because it's not understandable. It's all it's all fairy dust. It's fake. It's real. We don't know what it is. It's all just we're thrown up against the wall and everybody just assumes that everything is real. But actually, 80 percent of it's probably bullshit. So, like, it's like a really, really hard thing to really thread the needle on both as a reporter and as trying to dissect where it's headed. You said something really interesting a few minutes ago about. And, and I think I think this is it's true a lot a lot of sports, but it's especially true in college football. You know, when there are rule changes, who are the who are the people that recognize the rule changes and 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 leverage them for their benefit and kind of and kind of figure out okay, where's my advantage here? One of the one of the things that has always struck me about coaching staffs is that that they're sort of an amalgam. I mean, they're they're the, they're the guys on your staff who are your builders who are you your coach them up kind of guys who can who can help turn that two star into something else or that three star into into a five star or whatever else but there's also you know there's also guys who have made a living as assistant coaches as essentially as recruiters that they're, mm-hmm. like, they're the guys in the room they're the guys who can who can make the connection with with a kid and and get them to get them to visit get them to uh to a to a to end up at a school i'm interested how do you think NIL is kind of changing the composition of staffs or, or is changing kind of roles for assistants? Because, because it, it seems like they're jumping to the NFL, man. <laughs> Some of the best young recruiters that True. I, that, I mean, honestly speaking, if you there, I know three or four different people personally that have taken jobs in the NFL because recruiting is about financial stuff now. And it's like, if you are an ACE recruiter and you work for a group of five school, and you're able to go out there and get a few top 250 players, and you could set up your program real nicely in the group of five. But now it's just recruit your your ass off, and at the end of the road, some other program that's in the power five is just going to pay them more, and you lose out. What are you even spending? Like, yeah. like if I told you you could spend 80 hours uh, in the next two weeks working on a project, and at the end of the project, somebody who did nothing is just going to come, you know, get the the benefits of your hard work because they have more cash. Would you do the 80 hours of work? Does sound like the media business though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. A it does bit. sound yeah. like our industry a little bit. I'd like to introduce yeah, you I, to aggregation. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm very familiar, uh, but you know what I mean? It's yeah, just no, like, I totally get it, dude. It's, 
but aggregation doesn't take away from the original reporting and, you know, people still pay to read the stuff. So, you know, it's just like they, they all that work is for nothing. If you lose the kid, all that time right, you spent right. and all the money uh, that your program spent sending you around to, to fly in and visit with. And, you know, it's just time is money and you lose all of it when all you want to do is coach coach kids and, and be, um, you know, a coach. Why not just go to the NFL and coach people? So here's the thing, too. If you guys have ever heard me talk, um, I think that 80% of like, as things stand, maybe last year, 80% of a college coach's job is to recruit. And I think that people don't understand that. Like I 80% is getting the kids on your team. And then the other 20% is development and, and weightlifting and X's and O's and, you know, culture and all that other stuff that you like to read on, on fan sites. Um, Using timeouts correctly. <laughs> that's right. 80% of it is how can I get the best players on my team so that when we play the other team, we have better players than them. So, so many coaches have been fired in the recent past because they suck at recruiting. That doesn't mean they're not good coaches. There are a lot of really good coaches who can design a great offense or can motivate a team or get people to everybody love everybody like they did in that, that Will Ferrell movie. But if you can't get Dan Mullen's offensive system, bingo. So like now in a, in in a world where like, like, listen, I covered urban Meyer for seven years and right now he's a very polarizing figure. So, and I know people like him or don't like him. That dude is the most fierce recruiter I've ever seen in my entire life. And why did Ohio state lose nine games in his entire seven year tenure? Because every single time they took the field, they had better players in the team they were they're facing and the, in the losses that they did have were to teams that were similarly made up in the, in the postseason for the most part. And now college football, if NIL really gets a hold of it and the collectives become the GMs, then all of a sudden the, what makes an elite level college coach is going to shift. Like if you gave Dan Mullen, uh, Nick Saban's roster, how good of a coach would Dan Mullen be? Would he be fired or would he win a national title? He almost beat, he almost beat Nick Saban in the SEC championship game with with his own players, with his own players. Can you imagine? Right. So, and I thought Dan Mullen should have been fired. Like, I'm like the first person to be like, dude, does not get it. Does not know how to recruit yeah. to Florida. Does not want to do it. And he's not fit to be their coach because he can't get the talent that's necessary to win those games. But if there's a third party who is now going to broker deals for 17 year olds to come to that school and the coach is out of it, then all of a sudden there's a lot of co- like Herm Edwards might be the best coach in America <laughs> or Josh Heupel. We don't know who knows. Like is Nick Saban great because he is a great football mind or is he great because he has learned how to run a program that has 17 first round draft picks on it when they play teams with zero, (laughs) like what, like what really is it? And it's like, that is not a, I'm not taking anything away from Nick Saban, but if you go back and you look at urban Myers record at Ohio state, I think he was five and five in games with equal talent. It's not like these guys are like, right. Like, like to me, I think what Bill Belichick has done in the NFL is far more, far more uh, insane than anything that anybody at the college level has done because of the parody in that sport. But there isn't parody with Alabama and Ohio state. Let, let me, let me go Josh Heupel here because I find Josh Heupel to be a very fascinating character in this time frame Cause I think his offense is, is, is productive. It's always sort of a known commodity. It is what it is, but the knock on Josh Heupel has always been, he is not a great recruiter. He's not, he wasn't a great recruiter at UCF. He didn't, you know, win battles in the AAC at the time. But if, 
if this GM, this collective is now going to be the, his, he's outsourcing recruiting, right? Is what we're talking about. You're outsourcing the recruiting that you have to do to this collective. And how much credit does he get? Well, that's what I'm asking. Like, does that help him stay there longer? Of course. Like, obviously, but, but how, yeah. now here's, here's my question as a reporter. What do you think the, the community, the actual off the record communication is like, does a collective, are we going to see football coaches be hired as heads of collectives now? Like, because they have to evaluate talent. Like what is, so, yeah, that people, people always ask this and I think it's interesting, but um, are you guys like, do you follow a certain team? All of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you ask a fan, what's your favorite football team, college football team, and let's just use Ohio state. Cause it's my background. There are four publications who cover Ohio state that have a big board of Ohio state's targets on their front page right now. Like you, like anybody can go figure out who a, a program really wants, because all you've got to do is track visits and track offers and all that stuff is readily available. So if you're running a collective and this is the naive response, by the way, you don't really have to talk to the coach to know who they want. <laughs> it's like, Oh, you think that Tennessee wants Nico. I am alive. I can't, I've tried to say his name correctly and I can't do it. Forgive me. Yama Leava. Yama <laughs> I have written it out phonetically and I still can't say it, but you know, Nico, <laughs> so you need to take a rocket scientist to know that Tennessee wants Nico. Like, right. come on. So it'll be interesting. I think in the second tier programs where there's like a million players and you have to parse through right. them, but also the heads of the collectives are absolutely talking to the coaches. Right. So like, let's act like, 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 let's just cut the shit. Like they're talking to them. Like, of course they are. So like if you, there's a lot of burner phones in those offices. I bet. Oh, I love it. Um, and it's also like, why don't we just like make it legal? Like the coach can talk to whoever he wants. Yeah. We want that kid. We want that kid. But it's like, if Josh Heupel has a, a collective that is out in ahead of everything and they're going to sign a top four class this year and they do that four years in a row and Tennessee is awesome. How much of that is Heupel and how much of that is money? Yeah, it's not Heupel. 80% money. Right. So the, here's the thing that I will say, though, is that if Tennessee does go out and sign a top five class this year and has 10 top 100 players because of their collective, what's going to happen? Every other program that is situated financially the way that Tennessee is, is going to take note of that and they're going to do it, too. So eventually you're going to get more of an even. So I, I commend Tennessee and I commend maybe Texas A&M, depending on what you want to believe on being out ahead of everything that's going on right now. But like, you don't think that Clemson, Ohio state, Alabama, Georgia, USC, and every other program in America that has deep pocketed donors is going to take, take notice of that and, and catch up. Like we're three years away from everybody doing it. And then what's going to happen. It's going to go back to the same exact thing yeah. that already existed, which is what is the most attractive place for me to play? Because I'm going to get paid anywhere I go. Can I, let, we can, first of all, awesome talking to you, man. And we appreciate yeah, you no, it's giving been us fun. so I feel much like of your this, time. This blew by. Uh, so Arch Manning, and I heard you guys uh, talking about this with, um, forgive me, I think uh, uh, Chris wrote the story for The Athletic, uh, Hamani, is that, say his last name. Oh, for me. Uh, Chris Kamrani. Kamrani, yeah, I don't have Utah it. Utah based. He's I don't, I don't have it in front of me, so I apologize. That's, that's my yeah. fault. Um, no, but okay. great, great story. I recommended it on the show last week to everybody who listened because it's a phenomenal piece. And it's not just like a history lesson on like Eli and Peyton, but it's also what makes Arch Manning tick, who if you don't know about Arch Manning, of course, is the, as you've already alluded to in this interview, Arguably the most high profile and most famous recruit, maybe in the history of college football. Um, and if you wanted to cr put create a recruit that was more marketable than him in a lab, could you do it? I don't I, honestly, I, you said that on the show that day, yeah. and I think that's absolutely dead on. And what's ironic about all of it is that I'm not sure because of 
the last name and the uncles and the grandfather and the background and the history and the time we're in and location. Yeah. He's, he's also not going to be the one that takes advantage of it. Like he's, yes. he's the one who's going to stay insulated. And so it's so ironic that we have created this, this He'll thing take in a advantage laboratory. Of it. He'll take advantage of it. It just won't be till he gets to college. Probably uh, like he's going to get paid. But like I could, I honestly could see a world where Arch Manning is in a state farm commercial, like literally in a month. <laughs> Does he make like, more money in college than he would in his first NFL contract? Um, depending on where he gets drafted, maybe. That's insane. But I, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, like what makes somebody tick? It's like the NIL stuff is such an interesting dynamic too. And I wrote a story, a column about this when Nick Saban and um, Jimbo were going at it, but. Uh, Nick Saban's life work is creating a program that is inherently valuable without duffel bags, right? So like you go to Nick Saban and you see that their Alabama has taken five-star recruits and has turned them into first round draft picks twice as much as any other team, even the ones that recruit similarly to them. So to me, what is that worth if you're a parent? So you're getting a Alabama offer and you have an A&M offer and you have a LSU offer and a Texas, Texas. offer, right? <laughs> and all those other programs are paying you. And Alabama's like, you know what? You can come play for Saban. You can get your NIL money. However, it turns out when you get here, Bryce Young made a lot of money. People make money here, but we're not going to guarantee you any money coming here. How much money, if you had a five-star son, would you have to get paid by Texas or yeah. LSU? Yeah. And those are great programs to turn your back on what Nick Saban's offering you. Because yeah. I think that's inherently worth a half a million dollars in itself. So playing for Saban is an investment in your future, an investment that you are going to put yourself in a position to make generational wealth in three years if you go about it the right way and are very good. Now, that, that's easy for Arch Manning to say when he walks up to his that's grandfather's right. house in the Garden District of New Orleans. It's a lot different when like yes. mom needs the electrical bill tomorrow. But let, let me, I don't actually care let where he goes. Let me ask you this, though. If I flipped a coin right now and I said, you know what? I'll give you a hundred grand in a duffel bag right now. I'll hand it over to you right now, but, or plan B, I can flip a coin. If it lands on heads, I'll give you a million. And if it lands on tails, I'll give you zero. What would you do? Oh, this God. is the wheel of fortune question. Oh, God. This is, it is no, I've never heard anybody. This is, this is the, oh, the this man. is, this is what happens on wheel of fortune. Like literally every day is like somebody lands on the thing and they're like, it could be $10,000 or you could go bankrupt. What you, what do you, what, what are you, oh, you going to oh, do that. here? Oh yeah. I, the, I, the Again, if I was 18, right, and I hadn't had wisdom of becoming a parent or being in a workforce, like I could absolutely see the one in the hand being worth two in the bush, right? Like I could see the duffel bag and the hundred grand. And especially when a lot of these kids have a come from a situation where they kind of it's probably a lot more of an acute need at the right at that moment right. than than Arch Manning. And again, this is why it's so fascinating to me. But what would you pick with the knowledge that you have right now? As a person that has, as, as a 39 year old, I might, yeah. as a 39 year old, I might take the risk for a million dollars. I would take it, the risk a million times out of a million. I wouldn't even think about taking the hundred grand. I, I think I'm with and you. And I that. think that the problem is that there are a lot. And like, listen, I live in a, in a nice house and I've got a family and I'm fortunate. So, like, I'm not going to act like I'm not. Right. Uh, and I'm in a position where we're struggling to get money for rent together. So, like, I know that everybody's situations are different. But you have to have people. The point I'm trying to make is you have to have people in in place that are like guiding these kids that are smart enough to understand that if you hit heads or tails, 
and you hit a million bucks, your life is different forever. Whereas yeah. if you take the hundred grand, you might not be scraping for rent for, for six months or a year or two years or even three years, but eventually right. you're going to be in a bad position again if you don't use it properly. Okay. So like, that's the thing too. It's just like, you could just jump at the idea that taking a hundred thousand dollars and playing for Texas, which by the way, hasn't had a first round draft pick on the offensive side of the ball since Vince Young. <laughs> Think about that. No, no, Almost I was two getting, decades. It's so funny. You bring that up. Cause like, if you're asking me where I'm rooting for Arch Manning to go, what's the best story? It's not Georgia. It's not it's Ole Texas. Miss. It's Texas. And Texas gonna, needs them the most. They need them the most. They're about to join the sec. Sarkeesian's a former, a saving assistant. Like the yeah, story is best if he goes to Texas. Yeah. But also, and he's like a terrible example because he's comes from generational wealth and is never going to have to struggle financially. But let's say like Arch Manning came from a low income neighborhood and his parents needed money. So like, let's just pretend that Alabama is calling Georgia's calling him and Texas is calling him. Texas is offering him. How much money does Texas have to offer that person? Yeah. In order to make it worth his while to go to a place that hasn't had an offensive player draft since 2006. <laughs> Because you might get the 200 grand or the 100 grand. Now, listen, if the 8 million thing is true, I'd yeah. go play at uh, at Eastern Michigan for $8 million for all I care. I mean, <laughs> 8 million is enough money to be like, you know what? No matter what happens from this day on, I am set for life. Don't you talk so, about Ypsilanti that way, okay? Don't you no, talk about Ypsilanti. I'm just saying like that was the reason why I used, I used Eastern Michigan was because uh, one of their alumni offered Caleb Williams a million bucks to go play there. And I was like, I'd do that. It's a million dollars. but. So like it just depends on the amount of money, but the fact of of playing for Nick Saban or going to a place like Georgia, these, these places that turn out NFL draft picks every year without question, I think is inherently more valuable than jumping at the cash right away. If it's not life-changing. And I don't know that people are seasoned enough to understand the risks. And and, and the other thing too, is that these collective contracts are very confusing from what I've seen. Um, and if yep. you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're signing. Like, listen, and I'm not saying that Quinn Ewers made a bad decision here and I probably would have done the same exact thing that he did, but like he apparently went to Ohio state, left high school early to go make a million dollars on a kombucha tea ad. Right. I would bet my life that he did not make a million dollars. So like, if you, yeah. if you read stuff on Twitter, it's like, Oh yeah. Nico maybe is making $8 million. Is he actually going to make $8 million when it's all said and done? Like, even if he wins the Heisman at Tennessee, like, is that like actually the way it's like, this is so new and so like uncharted territory that like, I think a lot of the stuff too, is just like, let's throw numbers out there and Hey, that's what happens. It's like, this is a capitalistic environment we're in and people just throw money out the window. Rich people that have 8 million bucks usually don't throw away their money because they're smart enough to get rich. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So uh, I'll say this. Well, thank you so much, dude, for your time. As yeah, someone who's what you wanted. No, I it's exactly what it's exactly what we yeah. wanted. As someone who started at a recruiting company and refused to call 16 year old kids for a living. Uh, I, I appreciate how you view recruiting and how the you view the content top down big picture analysis of recruiting. I think it's the more interesting way to cover that beat. I well, think you, you guys do it better than anybody. I think I, I I'm I think your co-host leaves a lot to be desired sometimes, you know, good on, your, on your podcast, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but check out the podcast stars matter make sure you're subscribed to good journalism at the athletic. And, and of course, follow him on Twitter at Ari Washman. Thank you so much, dude. It's been a yeah. pleasure talking with you, man. We Anytime, man, you guys need me. You got my number now, save it. I, I love my favorite thing about my job is just, you know, shooting the shit with people. So if you, if you want to talk or have me back on, I'd be happy to join you. Awesome. Thank you. Ari. Awesome. Yep.
That was Ari Wasserman, of course, the podcast with Mitch Light. I was joking. I do love Mitch Light. He's probably a mentor of mine. If I had to, if I had to admit it, he might not admit it. Uh, but the podcast Stars Matter is great. Ari is a fantastic recruiting editor. And I, I'm really interested, Steve, that he came to recruiting through a different path. Like I came to recruiting sort of similarly where I was working for Rivals.com and I covered recruiting, but I did it sort of through the lens of college football top down instead of the way the folks who actually do the the ground grunt work to like call high school athletes, like kind of come at recruiting from the ground up. Uh, and I really appreciate his perspective. And uh, yeah, if you hear anyone say we need some rules, just ask them, what do you, what do you think those rules should be, bud? <laughs> yeah. Big, big, big problem. Uh, the, the thing I find really interesting about the work that Ari's doing uh, is, is what we, is what we touched on is kind of like, how and I think he's really perceptive to talk about that in terms of who is trying to leverage these rules in the right way, or or, or to give themselves the, the biggest advantage. And how what are the changes that are taking places? What are, where are those where are those conversations changing? Where are those staffs changing? Where are those programs changing? I, I think you know we're going to see we're going to see there's there's a sea change kind of going on. But within that are are these thousand little changes that are happening as well, and they're kind of fascinating to watch. Yep. Um, so we appreciate him. Go listen to his show, read his work, pay for good journalism at The Athletic, which, of course, we've said now a million times on the show. Uh, check out our YouTube page, rate, review, subscribe. Go to Jaster's Nashville Banner. I think that's like all the bills all in like one sentence. So um, all right, there you go. Recommendations, Steve. I, I don't have like necessarily one specific piece of content considering the news of the week and last week. I, I do think there is a, I've recommended offline the podcast before. Um, ben Collins is a reporter for that is, he calls himself the dystopian reporter and he spends a lot of time on places like HN, 4chan and discord, which God bless him for doing that. I don't know how, a human being does that, but I mean, I get, I mean, I, I guess the copay on his therapist is paid up every I, month. <laughs> I guess, but he, but he had a very long conversation, sadly, after the Buffalo shooting, but before the Texas shooting and it, but it does, it is incredible insight into how a young person becomes radicalized and all the different factors. It is not just guns. It is not just mental health. It is so much more like eco-fascism is a part of it. And oh my God, like if you want to spend some time, go read up on eco-fascism. But Ben Collins, I'm recommending him. He, he did an interview on, on offline, but really I just want to sort of make a, a, a PSA here, Steve. And I know you'll have like an actually good recommendation here. I, I just want to say if something tragic happens, you don't need to tweet about it. Like you don't need to go out and inject yourself into the conversation. And yet, and yet here is my recommendation to all of you out there do something. You have agency. If there's anything in your community that you do not like, don't sit at home and tweet about it. Go do something about it. And that could be any number of things. That could be join a campaign. That could be join a gr an activist group. That could be donating money. That could be running for local office. There are so many things you could do instead of sitting at home and sad tweeting and doom scrolling. Go do something. If you don't want something if you want something to change in your community, Nashville, whatever, go do something about it. Get off your ass and go touch some grass. All right. There you go. If you do tweet about it, you know, I, 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 first of all, don't do it within 24 hours of something horrific happening. But 
but if you don't do, say like, don't say thoughts and prayers, please, for the no, love please of don't God, don't say thoughts and prayers. Please don't say that. I, I had I had seen something that Senator Frist had had tweeted out that seemed to change his position on gun control legislation that I that I retweeted uh, and proceeded to get tagged into a debate by some people de- who were wholly concerned about other things and were using like we're using the moment to push their own sort of personal animus about masks and schools and whatever else. And oh, it's Jesus. just like, it's like, look guys, I mean, first of all, don't tweet, but second, but second of all, you know, if you do just, you don't have, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. to It's okay to just kind of watch. Yeah. Uh, I, I did tweet, but my tweet was, you have agency. Go do something. Yeah, I I, I tend to I, I tend to try to tweet sort of uh, kind of primary sources and you know people who are like doing boots on the ground reporting and that kind right. of stuff. Right. But the I mean, nobody cares about my opinion about gun control. Right. I mean nobody 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 cares that I think that that it, it's ridiculous that we can buy AR-15s at Walmart or. I mean, somebody's going to come at me for that. Uh, no, it's fine. No, every, no, it's every, it's no, fine no. when you look at every single shooting that, that the major shootings that have been done, every single one is done by the same stinking gun. But anyway, not the point. The point not is the point. if you don't like something, <laughs> you have vote for the love of Christ. You have agency. You have agency. I think that is, I think, have I got the message across? Go get involved. Just go, seriously. Just, go, and, lots and, of ways oh, to do it. And oh, by the way, you will be astonished at how positive dopamine is released in your brain when you get around people that are that are working towards a common goal it is it is astonishing what will happen to you when you just get off your ass stop tweeting and go do something and so just go do something that's all go do something yeah, absolutely so uh, i have two things i have one uh, about this week and one not very much not about this week that will maybe help you forget about this week um a couple of years ago, uh, this is a piece that was in the uh, was in the Highline, which is a which is a offshoot of Huffington Post. Um, it was uh, it's a really uh, perceptive piece called "What Bullets Do to Bodies," uh, oh, and God. the 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 sub the subhead on this is the gun debate would change in an instant if Americans witnessed the horrors that trauma surgeons confront every day. And what the reporter did was they talked, you know, they, they went in and looked at exactly what bullets do to uh, what bullets do to victims and kind of how, <clears throat> I oh mean, my God. and it's, it's very heavy stuff, uh, but it's also, it, it, it's also done in a really sort of interesting medical sort of way. And, and, you know, you'll, you'll, the, 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 the takeaway from that was, you know, I, I can't imagine uh-huh. needing something with the, with the power of some of the weapons that we've seen here recently. Look, you know, I like shooting guns. I like hunting. I, I'm pro gun. I'm anti kid dying from gun. How about that? Is that a complicated stance? I don't think right. it is. I don't think it is at all. <laughs> it's not. So anyway, but, but, uh, complicated. but wait, but before the, you get to, before you get to the, are you about to go to the good, positive, lighthearted one? Well, I, I was about to, but I was going to say the, the, the title, the title of the piece is what bullets do to bodies. And it's, okay. it's about four years old. I think it was five years old. It was, I think it was done in 2017. Well worth your time. Okay. 
Uh, can I ask you a very strange question before we get to your positive review, which I want to end the podcast on a happy, positive note, because we had a very heavy show today with, sure. a, lot of, with a lot of heavy topics. So this is the last one. Um, what it, what do you have advice recommendation? What do you do? Do you watch the videos? Christchurch, Ahmad Arbery, this one, Buffalo, like, do you, what, what is your approach to that? Do you think it is important for people to see? Is it important for people to avoid? What, what is your, what are your thoughts? I tend to watch most of them. Uh, but I, you know, I, I tend to, I, I, I tend to look at really graphic photos from war. Uh, I, I, I tend, because I want to see, I want to see full context. I want to see kind of, kind of, I want to see what reality looks like. Isn't that the debate um, about the children right now is like, are, should we, should we begin releasing photos of children that have been shot so that people understand what, the, what's happening better? Like, that it, it's a good question and i, I don't want to i don't know i haven't thought enough about sort of that debate here yeah. yet the I, I i tend to i tend to look at them but i i also i also realize that i'm i may be an outlier in that um i i've just i don't know i i've looked at a lot of i mean part of my job at different points in my career has been to has been to go through the video and those photos in, in you know in the course of uh, you know, editing news coverage. And I, I just, you can, maybe, compart- you can compartmentalize it. Yeah, I can. And, yeah. and not everybody else can. And, you know, maybe that says something really, <laughs> that says something really bad about me. Um, but I, I just, I, so, I, it's not, it's not for everyone. And, and please don't do it. Uh, don't do it without thinking about it. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing. Cause I've, I've... I, I was, I was having a conversation with, with a really good friend of mine, um, who uh, does he, he's he's on the planning staff at the at the New York Times and if you haven't seen the Thursday paper uh, from the New York Times it's chilling uh, oh, it really God. is and and we were texting back and forth and and Josh said something really really interesting to me that I hadn't thought about it for a while because I haven't been sort of I haven't been sort of like in the the mix of doing a daily newspaper now for a decade and and you you get desensitized to that a lot when when you when you when you're like editing a front page when you're designing packages that have graphic content in it and and he's like man i don't know how many more of these front pages i can do and and i hadn't i I hadn't thought about that. I think, yeah. I think there's a, there, yeah. like, again, don't go on Twitter. I think there's a lot of performative Twitter um, trauma on Twitter right now. Um, but I, I, there, there is, there, there is, there is something that is, and, and I, I'm finding, I'm, I'm, I've been struggling with this ever since, you know, ever since this conversation. Uh, he's, you know, he's like, this has sort of changed kind of how i uh <laughs> how i see things as as a human and and i can't i can't fault him for that i mean my god uh, trying to trying to do that job you can't do it coldly and if you do yeah 
I, I think I think you you have to you have to you have to. It's no different than the guy I was just talking about. It's no different than Ben Collins having to read an entire diary of an eight months worth of posts from on Discord by an eighteen year old kid who ends up killing eleven people in a grocery store because he had a toothache. Like, like it's just how do you serve, how do you get your brain out of that when you know you have to do it and you think you're doing it for the right reasons? Again, I, I think I think about like domestic assault charges for like NFL players, and we think like with Joe Mixon, like why do we need to see the videos of this stuff for people to take action? But then we do see the videos, and then people and then action is taken. And I I honestly wonder if that would do something to to us as a country if we saw these little children treated the way you just described that that article wrote up about what a bullet does to your body and i just i i, I don't know i don't know what i would do if i was if it was if i was the parent I, th- I certainly think the parents have to sign off on it um i i tend to watch all of these things because i want to be informed i want to know what happened and then so then i can form my own opinion but i like you i'm also you know able to compartmentalize it all so i think that's up to everybody but you definitely have to think about all this stuff i think before you consume it um, and certainly, again, I don't think spewing your stuff out into the world and getting into arguments, I don't think that has any impact on anybody. Go actually do something. So, all right, we're, end of end of heavy. Um, g- give us something positive to end this week on, Steve, here on a, a wonderful Friday morning. <laughs> um, so I so I'm so I mentioned uh, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I, I'm a Bosch fan. Uh, the the new season is out on Freebie, which is used to be IMD T, IMDb TV, which is Amazon Awful. Prime's free service. Um, I, I I really like the new season. It's really propulsive. It's, it's very good. It's almost it winds up here. Uh, I think the last two episodes dropped this weekend. Um, but one of the reasons why I like it is because I'm a fan of Michael Connolly, the author. Uh, and some Connolly uh, has uh, has a couple of sort of main characters. One of them is Harry Bosch, but the other one is this guy named Mickey Holler. Um, and and um, Mickey is is the the title character in a, it was made into a movie with Matthew McConaughey called The Lincoln Lawyer, which is they've now done oh, yeah. they've now taken the second Holler book uh, and turned that into a Netflix series. Uh, and it is really good. Okay. I mean, it, it it's not it, it's not like prestige TV. Uh, you know, we we've talked a bunch about kind of we own the city and that being kind of like you know super high end prestige top, top tier TV. yeah TV. This is not. This is this is fun legal procedural uh, kind of mystery okay. stuff. Um, it has a it has a great cast. Uh, it has um, an actor who is uh, Mexican that I had that I had not known in the in the in the in the title role. Uh, Nev Campbell is in it. Uh, God, I love Nev Campbell when I was I a kid. love Nev Campbell when I was a uh, kid. Wild things. Oh my God, <laughs> easy. Uh, and I'm just saying, it hit me right when I was like 13. Okay, look, <laughs> look, not my fault. But 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 it's just it's so enjoyable. Uh, and, and Jen and I were talking about this, this very thing, uh, here this week with, with a lot of kind of bad news out there. We, I'm glad we had just kind of started this thing. Yeah. It's 10 episodes. It's about, an, it's about 45 to 50 minutes per episode. Uh, it is a great distraction. Yep. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's shot in, in LA in kind of a beautiful way. 
it's a it's a fun it's a fun kind of character. You, I always kind of like you know lawyers with a little bit of swagger. Um, it's not realistic. Uh, you know, don't get into it's okay. <laughs> Yellowstone isn't even close to realistic, so it's right, fine. Right, right. It's still fun. These uh, are stories. These are store adult male stories. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm pretty much going to be a hack for anything that Connolly uh, has is attached yeah, to, yeah. Uh, and, and this is this is well worth your time. It's it's just a lot of fun. Um, I, I will wrap up this episode by uh, confirming a few of your previous recommendations. I I bought and am reading the Premonition by Michael Lewis. Uh, he he compares the United States of America's pandemic preparedness uh, to the University of Texas in the first two pages. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yep, this is why I love this guy. <laughs> he gets it. He can write intelligently about a national global pandemic and the and University of Texas football always being overrated. Uh, it was just fantastic. It's a, it's a great read. I recommend it. And Barry on HBO is I love the show. It, it is a little dark comedy, but if you want a little get away and like the absurdity of sort of like all the, all different types of like, especially if you like dry comedy, it's he, he, Bill Hader is fantastic. He is brilliant over on the ringer. Uh, one, on one of their pods. Uh, I think it's on the prestige TV pod. Uh, Hader and Sean fantasy are recapping the Barry episodes. And if you're a fan of the show, it's really fun to hear Hater talking about it. It's it is one of the strangest concepts ever, and it is so delightful. Uh, even if it is kind of dark comedy at times, it's it's very very good. So um, there you go. There's a lot of recommendations, a lot of heavy stuff, uh, and and finishing on some some light uh, Harry Bosch notes there uh, to to wrap things up. Um, okay, sign up for the Nashville banner. Go to Jasper's. It's a great place to watch the game and keep those damn drinks off the freaking air hockey table, people. You have been deputized. Go out there. Do you the must good. save the table. Listen, what I said about earlier about, uh, you know, being active in your community. Same thing applies to drinks on the air hockey table. Be active. Go out there. Make a difference in people's lives. For Steve Cavendish, my name is Braden Gall. Special thanks to Ari Wasserman for giving us tons of insight on name, image, and likeness. This has been Lamestream Sports. We'll talk to you guys again next week.